Welcome back to the Franchise Festival podcast, where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 2, we're covering the evolution of Capcom's Resident Evil. You can find us online at FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes, or consider funding us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival. Patrons, like our first supporter, Cheetah Chew, will get shouted out on the show and get access to bonus episodes. The first bonus episode is currently available to backers on Patreon and covers our background with horror cinema, literature, and games. If you have any questions or suggestions, be sure to reach out to us via email at franchisefestival at gmail.com. Today on the podcast, we're going to be covering Resident Evil 2. As ever, we're your hosts, Chris, Spencer, and Hamilton. And we're glad to have you with us today. Let's talk Resident Evil 2. Shinji Mikami, who had directed Resident Evil, moved into the role of producer for the sequel. Hideki Kamiya, who'd been a rookie planner on Resident Evil, was elevated to the role of director on Resident Evil 2 at only 23 years old. He had a bit of an outsized personality, uh, as anybody who follows him at this point on Twitter knows, and he was not popular among the wider Capcom staff, but Shinji Mikami believed him to be a really talented visionary, and that faith would end up being well-placed. I think uh, Mikami said something along the line. He, they had dinner together, and he uh, told Hideki Kamiya, uh, you're either going to fail spectacularly or succeed greatly, or something along yes, those lines. Yes, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's in that book. Yeah, I really like that conversation, which I think really speaks to the kind of extremes of Kamiya's personality. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I guess it's worth noting, folks who aren't familiar with uh, Kamiya are almost certainly familiar with his work. He was behind Okami as well as the Bayonetta series, uh, Devil May Cry, The Wonderful 101, just all kinds of stuff. Beautiful Joe. Oh, wow. That's a blast from the past. Yeah, he's an extremely prolific man and has created a, a wide variety of content that's generally a little larger than life. So it's kind of funny that his first project was on Resident Evil 2, which, while more bombastic than Resident Evil 1, doesn't really sound or look like Bayonetta or Okami or anything. And yet, like, um, like Devil May Cry and, uh, like Bayonetta has very loosely kind of horror-based creatures in them. Yeah. Um, although they're definitely far more action-oriented. So the original version of Resident Evil 2 began production in early 1996, pretty much as soon as Capcom knew it had a hit on its hands with Resident Evil 1. It was worked on by approximately 45 people, which was much smaller than the 80 who had worked on Resident Evil 1. I assume because they already had, like, a game engine and a development pipeline and everything, they already had their feet under them, so maybe they didn't need quite as many folks involved. By the end of the year, a prototype of that first version of the game was shown off at Japan's V-Jump Festival. 
and this would later become known as Resident Evil 1.5, since it differs pretty dramatically from the final game. The plot itself is where the differences start to uh, become apparent. So in the original version of Resident Evil 2, I, for the sake of uh, listeners, we'll call it Resident Evil 1.5 from here on out, Umbrella had in fact been disbanded. Uh, the efforts of the STARS members who returned from the Spencer Mansion in Resident Evil 1 were successful, and so uh, the police department of Raccoon City uh, went about getting rid of all of the Umbrella labs. In this version of the series lore, of course, Umbrella is local to Raccoon City, whereas, uh, as we'll find in the direction that they actually went with the final game, Umbrella is a much larger organization. Kamiya had said that the reason why he had that disconnected story was because he wanted RE2 to stand apart uh, from RE1 and just kind of have its own legs mm -hmm. underneath it and not lean on the story that was established in that first one. The available characters to play as in Resident Evil 1.5 were Leon, who f appears in the final game, as well as biker Elza Walker. So Elza was a uh, college student in Raccoon City who's returning from her summer break at the time that uh, the events of the game kick off. And uh, she crash lands in the RPD, the Raccoon Police Department, uh, on her motorcycle as zombies attack. Both of the player characters would have been teaming up with partner characters, much like the final game, but they would have had more partner characters who they teamed up with for longer. So Leon would have teamed up with Marvin Branagh, who appears in the final game, another RPD cop. But Marvin survives in the uh, in Resident Evil 1.5 and uh, works with Leon for much of the game. Leon would have also teamed up with an early version of Annette Birkin named Linda, as well as Ada, again, much as he would in the final game, except in this version, she actually is an Umbrella employee. Uh, who has been detained by the Raccoon Police Department at the time of the zombie outbreak. Elsa would have teamed up with Sherry, again as the final game, as well as a version of gun salesman Kendo named John. And Elsa is tasked by RPD cop Roy with getting him out of a cell, uh, which she does. There were also a variety of mechanics that are present in 1.5 that would be scrapped midway through development. These include equipable clothing that would have reduced damage from enemies, grenades, which wouldn't turn up in another Resident Evil game until, I believe, RE4. Finally, there are a few enemies that were present in 1.5 that don't appear in Resident Evil 2. The most interesting of these are zombie baboons, or gorillas. Um, I've always thought of them as zombie baboons, but when I was watching the footage and playing the game ahead of time, they looked more like gorillas to me. There's also this strange kind of, like, larger chimera, almost. It's like a humanoid figure with, like, six kind of taloned arms coming out of its back. Uh, that's pretty scary, but that didn't appear in the final game either. The uh, enemies in 1.5 generally take a lot more hits to kill, and the player gets a lot more ammunition. So yeah. it ends up kind of having a lot more shooting, which I think is probably a reflection of Camille's uh, gravitation toward the action side of the game yeah i think you're right about that all of the character models in the game as well are rendered in fewer polygons than would appear in resident evil 2 just so you could get more zombies on screen uh for exactly that reason it's more of a an action horror as opposed to a straight survival horror yeah. 
a quick caveat, I guess, on any gameplay thing we bring up. Because this wasn't released, the build of the game that, you know, at least I was able to get FaceTime with is kind of like a version that was stitched together by fans consisting of leaked source code over the Mm -hmm. years. So this is not necessarily a good representation of what the finished product may have been had this version made it to publication. Yeah, that's a really insightful point, because much of what is said about Resident Evil 1.5 at this point is based on the playable build of the game that circulated since the early 2010s. The setting for Resident Evil 1.5 is very different from Resident Evil 2. Uh, While both are set in the Raccoon Police Department, the RPD of Resident Evil 1.5 actually looks like a real-world police department. It's got a lot of uh, cubicles, it's got office portions, it's got lobbies, it's got very harsh fluorescent lighting, it's got kind of a blue cast to it uh, that is extremely different from the Baroque complexity of the police station in the final version of the game. While this did progress for about a year of development, it would be harshly criticized by project supervisor Yoshiki Okamoto. Okamoto had replaced Tokuro Fujiwara during development of Resident Evil 1. That's Fujiwara who had created Sweet Home as well as been the main proponent behind getting Shinji Mikami to make Resident Evil 1. While Okamoto himself would resign from Capcom during the development of Resident Evil 2 to start a studio called Flagship, his concerns were heard by Mikami and Kamiya and uh, were, were considered very seriously, so they sought outside help on Resident Evil 2. Mikami and Kamiya would meet with uh, a television writer, Noburo Sugimura, who had been producing scripts for uh, TV shows like Super Sentai in Japan since 1975 to retool the Resident Evil 2 script. So Sugimura diagnosed the game's biggest problem as its lack of connection to the first game, and uh, he, like Okamoto, intensely disliked the prototype, Resident Evil 1.5. So he produced an entirely new script for Capcom. He got hired on full-time. He swapped out Elsa for Claire Redfield, who we know from the final game, and leaned heavily on the Stars team's experience at the Spencer Manor for Resident Evil 2's backstory, rather than just giving them kind of a footnote as they came back from the mansion and got rid of Umbrella, and that was the last anybody heard of them. The entire Resident Evil 1.5 build was scrapped at about 80% completion, which delayed the game's planned release by over a year. At this time, as you can imagine, listeners, Kamiya was almost dropped as the director of the game. A bunch of Capcom staff who were working on the project directly requested this of producer Mikami, uh, which is like that, that working environment must have been pretty tense, right? like going to your boss's boss to request that your boss be fired. While no playable version of that original 80% complete Resident Evil 1.5 has ever been released, an unfinished build began circulating online in the early 2010s, and a fan campaign worked that up into a mostly playable game. Uh, It still has a lot of graphical glitches. Um, it, It kind of makes you appreciate just how much care goes into an actual finalized Resident Evil game since you can kind of wander into the background or, you know, overlap environmental details or that sort of thing, and it lacks any puzzles. So it, you know, it it clearly isn't in a finished state, but you can get pretty much from start to finish 
and encounter most of the major scripted events, which is pretty cool. I'm of the opinion that Resident Evil 1.5 is indeed very bland. Uh, and of course, I'm looking at an unfinished copy, so of course it wouldn't have the polish of a finished game. But it is near impossible to imagine anything that would have worked this up into a game that was half the quality of the finished Resident Evil 2. I think uh, Capcom scrapping it and starting over as tough a choice as that must have been at the time was the right choice. Yeah, Kamiya, the director himself, said, quote, It truly was a piece of shit. It was boring, devoid of vision, and a poor excuse for a horror game. There you have it. <laughs> so once they moved on from that, the new version replaced virtually all of the background assets and zombies with new designs. Uh, you'll notice if you do check out Resident Evil 1.5, the zombies look different. They actually look pretty creepy. They're a lot kind of like darker and more decayed in some ways. But they're also more simple models, so you can fit more of them on the screen at the time. My favorite detail about the zombies in the original build of the game are that you can shoot them in the middle with the shotgun, which separates their upper half from their lower half, and their upper half crawls around on the floor after you, which is pretty cool. The RPD that appears in Resident Evil 2 was based on the interiors of Western-style buildings in Japan rather than real-world police departments. This was directly at the request of Sugimura, who wanted the building to be maze-like and more reminiscent of Resident Evil 1's spooky Spencer Mansion. He was the uh, person who's credited with introducing the idea of the RPD being a former art museum to justify this. Strangely, a last-minute error resulted in this game being two discs, even though it should have been able to fit on one. Uh, this uh, has been attributed by Kamiya himself to his inexperience as a director. They kind of let the file size balloon. I want to say it was related to the audio quality for the game, but I wouldn't swear to it. In any case, Kamiya and his team ended up in the awkward position of pitching to their bosses, shipping this game on two discs which was exponentially more expensive than shipping it on one disc. Uh, so the Capcom executives once again almost canned the project, but it was so close to the finish line that they just greenlit it anyway. This ended up being a really serendipitous decision because Marks Like Me, uh, who was a big JRPG fan at the time, saw Resident Evil 2 and thought, wow, it must be better because it's two discs. Uh, and so a lot of folks bought it or were interested in it because it just seemed so much bigger than the original Resident Evil, and indeed bigger than Resident Evil 3, which would ship on one disc. Uh, in fact, while it is really ambitious, it's not file size-wise that much bigger than any of those. It was just kind of a production quirk that happened to uh, work out that way. The game would release in North America first on January 21st, 1998 on the PlayStation, then in Japan a little over a week later, on January 29th, 1998, and then finally in Europe in April of the same year. It sold nearly 1.5 million copies in Japan during its first four days alone, which at the time was only really rivaled by Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. By 1999, only a year after release, it had made Capcom $19 million dollars, outpacing the sales of Mario 64 and Final Fantasy 7. We did a little bit of digging to try to find why the game released uh, in North America before Japan. Yeah. I didn't find anything. I don't know if you did, Chris, but... No, neither did I. My spec... My, you know, pure speculation. My best guess is that it has something to do with the fact that uh, pre-orders were so um, high in North America. 
Uh, oh, itchy, yes. t- itchy tasty said it was something along the lines of 60% of the entire initial, uh, print run of the game, uh, went right to North American pre-orders. I'll bet you're right. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know if pre-order culture was bigger in North America or, or what the deal is, but yeah, the pre-orders for it were really high in uh, the United States and Canada. Whatever the case, uh, it's really nice to see that Mikami believing in Kamiya was vindicated. There are just so many ways that this game could have gone wrong, and almost did so many times. And yet, like a few other Resident Evil games, as we'll talk about uh, later on in the season, it made it to the finish line in the best possible form. Uh, and uh, Capcom was rewarded for that faith in their product, so it's, it's really nice that we ended up with Resident Evil 2. Spencer, want to tell us about the gameplay of Resident Evil 2? I do. Uh, I don't think we're going to go into, like, full detail of all the, the kind of minute gameplay here, because we already went over that in the RE1 episode, and this is yeah. functionally identical in a lot of ways. Yep. You know, tank controls, pre-rendered backgrounds, yada yada. I feel as though the tank controls are less janky than they were in the first one. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. It's like, it's a little more refined here i I think you're right about that it's hard to put your finger on easier to move and that could be just me yeah well i was gonna bring up i felt like i had a significantly easier time moving around and dodging zombies in this one but i didn't know if that was due to any sort of uh, mechanical change or if that was just me being you know more proficient with it now having just finished playing through re1 yeah i'm not sure i do know the environments are bigger so just by virtue of the fact that the hallways are wider and you encounter zombies in larger areas means that it's going to be a little bit easier to kind of uh, fool them, you know, get them to go to one side and then you go to the other. But I've never heard anything like really specific on the record about this, but it's hard not to get the impression that the controls are a little refined here. Yeah, like I was able to dodge a lot of attacks a little bit better. Although, again, I I can't account for whether I'm just accustomed to it or... It's hard to say. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably the most notable difference, though, um, while RE1 did have two playable campaigns with Chris and Jill, which were different from one another, this introduces the zapping system, Mm -hmm. which alludes to the A and B scenario setup. And the way that works is once you play through the game with one character, that is the A scenario... And once you complete it, that creates a new save file that you can load that uh, puts you into a B scenario for another character. And that is just um, kind of a different path through the game that sort of changes the route that you have to take and some of the story elements that you're exposed mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And that ties into the way that this, uh, you know, you have to play through both campaigns to get a complete picture because you have two 
different stories basically happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, as we kind of go through the rest of this, we'll be referring to like Leon A, Leon B, Claire A, and Claire B yeah. to talk about the four different kind of ways that you can see this game. Yeah, and one of the odd things about that is that this game essentially presents two different versions of events, and they aren't the A and B versions, because Leon A and Claire B are paired and represent one version of events, and then Claire A and Leon B are paired and represent a second version of events. There are actions in an A campaign that will affect events in a B campaign. Um, Did you encounter any of those, Spencer? Yeah, there's a few neat things um, where you can find kind of like a cache of weapons or items or upgrades and what have you where you choose one on the A camp. Well, I think you can choose one or both. And then whatever you don't take is what you find in that same location on the B campaign. So there's a little bit of future planning involved there with what you want to leave behind. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the game, there is a puzzle that you can solve that you have to do it's optional and you have to do it on both the a and the b campaign in order to unlock a separate area in the b campaign where you get uh what is it it's more machine gun ammo and i think there's something else in there too i think there's also a situation where if you use the um there's like a poison gas in the lab area and if you use it in the a campaign the plant enemies in the b campaign are harder you know, I didn't realize there was cause and effect there. I noticed that they were harder in my B campaign, but I just assumed that was because the flamethrower that you get in Leon A was just generally more effective against them than the weapons I had on Claire. That is true, too, admittedly. Oh, we didn't mention yet, you can get an uh, inventory upgrade, which is useful. It, up- yeah. it upgrades you from 8 to 10 inventory slots, and that is one of the... Um, that's one of the upgrades that you have to choose whether you want in A or B. Mm-hmm. My personal recommendation would be to pick it up in the A campaign, just because when you are less familiar with the items you're going to be picking up and what you kind of need moving forward, having those extra inventory spaces is really crucial. Your second pass through the game, you have a better idea of what you need when, so you can be a little more precise with what you store in the item boxes and what you bring with you all the time. So the extra two inventory slots are a little less useful just a little bit yeah that makes a lot of sense i would have uh recommended that people pick it up in the b campaign because it has slightly harder bosses but i think your advice is maybe more useful uh in each camp uh character campaign however you do get a kind of side companion uh and there are sections of the game that you play through as that companion in the leon campaigns you play as ada The first impression of Ada is that she is um, just someone who is in Raccoon City looking for her boyfriend, John, who is an Umbrella employee. And in the Claire campaigns, you play as Sherry, who is a little girl who has lost her parents that Claire kind of uh, protects and escorts through the game. Yeah. Ada plays like the player character in that she has a weapon and she can fight and kill zombies as she moves around. Sherry does not. Uh, You have to kind of dodge and avoid any enemies you come across when playing as Sherry uh, to get from objective to objective. Yeah, it's it's a bit harder to play as Sherry, in my opinion. Um, and uh, playing as Sherry, for one reason or another, makes the zombies more likely to spit acid at you, which is kind of a strange detail. I noticed that, and my theory is that 
they just didn't want to have to animate the zombie biting a smaller target. Yeah, or especially like a child, I guess, maybe. Yeah, because I never yeah. actually had a zombie bite me. They always just tried to puke acid on me as I ran by as Sherry. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a f- some bonus modes introduced here as well. There's fourth survival mode. Uh, I did not get around to beating all four campaigns, but you unlock fourth survivor mode after you beat all four of them. Is that correct? I read different things online, strangely enough, as far as how you unlock fourth survivor mode. One of the things that I read was that you simply need an A rank in one of the two paired campaigns, and that unlocks it. That doesn't seem to be the case on the GameCube edition, because I didn't unlock it having gotten an A rank on Claire B. Completing all four campaigns also did not unlock it. I completed all four campaigns and fourth survivor mode was still not available. So I ended up booting up my Nintendo 64 copy and enabling it via a cheat code to play it. Uh, I actually have no earthly idea how you unlock it in the original version of the game. I was going to say, if you're scrubs like us, you can use cheat codes to to get a glimpse at it. (laughs) Um, Fourth survivor mode is a uh, kind of a rush to the finish line mode where you play as a character named Hunk, who is an umbrella operative. Uh, And this is kind of a plot of that runs... I guess this is kind of also parallel to the the main campaigns where yeah. this it shows the story of an umbrella operative who steals a sample of the G virus, which is responsible for the zombies in this game, and then extracting it out of uh, Raccoon City. Just a minor point of clarification for Resident Evil super fans: I think it's the T virus that Hunk steals, not the G virus that no. Birkin infected himself yeah, with. Yeah, the G virus was the virus from the first game. The T I think virus. you've got it backwards. Oh, the T virus is the on first it. one. G virus. Yeah, T virus is first. G virus is second. <laughs> Dog on it. There's also something called the Tofu Survivor Mode. This is, I think, uh, pretty much identical to the Fourth Survivor Mode. It's the difference being that you play a big block of tofu mm-hmm. and you only get to use a knife. Yeah. Yeah, the tofu is based on a model that the dev team used to test the hitboxes when they were kind of debugging the main campaign. It was just like a big white rectangular prism. Right. So that kind of looked like a block of tofu. So it's kind of like a joke or an Easter egg. I don't really know the origins of why they decided to include this, but you can play through the fourth survivor mode as a big piece of tofu with a knife. I'm so happy they did. They created one of the single funniest pieces of Resident Evil artwork to accompany this. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll we'll plop that down on the FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com website. But whether you go there or not, please, for goodness sake, seek out the illustration for the Tofu Survivor Mode. It's hilarious. It makes a comeback in Monster Hunter World. What? There is, it does. There, huh? For the RE2 remake, there was a Monster Hunter Resident Evil crossover event, and one of the things you could get was a charm that dangled off the end of your weapon that was a uh, block of tofu with a knife. That's huh. delightful. Yep. That is delightful. <laughs> this mode is nigh unbeatable, in my opinion. Um, I have no earthly idea how you would do it. Like, the knife is pretty much useless in this game. So what you're mostly doing is avoiding enemies, and I just don't know how you do it. <laughs> As is the case with most things, if you go on YouTube, you probably find somebody just absolutely oh, cakewalking through it in three minutes. That. But... Well, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, if you do it for like six hours a day, you'll figure out a way. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, we've got some kind of returning weapons and some new ones as well in this. Uh, the knife is back and is just as ineffective as it was in one. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Leon and Claire uh, have two different pistols. I believe they do the same damage. Leon's holds 18 rounds. Claire's only holds 13. Uh, they yeah. both use the same pistol ammo. Yeah, and I only noticed is... this on like my fourth run that Leon had more bullets than Claire. Uh, shotgun, magnum, grenade launcher, and rocket launcher all back. Grenade launcher still has three different ammo types that have mm-hmm. varying effectiveness across uh, different enemy types. Yeah. There are some shiny new ones. Uh, there's the bow gun, which is effectively just a crossbow that Claire gets. Let's talk about the bow gun for a second. Let's. I think, Spencer, you and I had very different experiences with this. Because I am something of a non-observant putz, I didn't notice the grenade launcher on the countertop in the Claire B scenario, so I went through most of the Claire B scenario with the pistol, the bowgun, and the kind of incidental bonus weapons that she gets, and I found the bowgun nearly useless. Like, it, it shoots out a little spread of arrows and can be... I guess decent at crowd control with zombies, but it doesn't take them down in one hit like the grenade launcher does. I did manage to take down zombies with one hit sometimes. Hmm. When it comes right down to it, it's stronger than your handgun and weaker than your grenade launcher. So I used it kind of depending on where I was on the ammo curve. Mm -hmm. There was a point in the Claire campaign when I had kind of burned through all my handgun ammo, so I was running, ar- but I had plenty of bolts left for the bowgun. So I was running around with the bowgun and the grenade launcher, using the bowgun for just the rank and file, and then the grenade launcher for harder stuff like liquors. And that seemed to work pretty well for me. So Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's a transition I tend to make in a Resident Evil game. Like uh, with Leon, I usually abandoned the handgun about halfway through the game in favor of swapping between the shotgun and the magnum. For some reason, I never quite made that leap with Claire, and I think it's because I just didn't get the grenade launcher until late in the game when I had to look up on a guide where I had missed it. There's an introduction of a submachine gun, which is a fully automatic weapon that takes up two inventory spots. And this is interesting because the ammo on this, similar to the flamethrower in the spark shot, Mm -hmm. is not portrayed in terms of rounds it's just percentage of maximum yeah and you don't get the option to refill this um well the refill on ammo for the submachine gun is actually something that you have to do the uh the a and b dual puzzle in order to get so it's quite possible to run through the game and never get an ammo refill for this and even if you do it's significantly later in the game than when you first pick up the weapon Mm -hmm. so this is something that does need to be used kind of sparingly I kind of found myself not using it well enough because it takes up two inventory spaces instead of one. I was hesitant to just carry it around with me blindly. I wanted to save it for something that I felt like I needed the extra firepower for. Mm -hmm. But when that stuff popped up, I wasn't necessarily close to an item box to, you know, kind of whip it out. I'd get caught by surprise by it. Yeah. um, And then I wouldn't have it. Uh, That said... It kind of occurred to me later on that that was a silly way to go about it because it doesn't have its own separate ammo. Other guns do, so if you're carrying like the shotgun, for example, and spare shotgun shells, that still functionally takes up two inventory spots the same way as the submachine gun does, so I probably should have been using it more. 
Yeah, I never thought about that until just now when you said it. But yeah, like every other gun also takes up two inventory slots. It's just the gun and the ammo. Although, sometime recently when I started playing Resident Evil games, when I was playing the remakes, I came to the conclusion that I would generally carry a weaker gun and its ammo, and then a stronger gun but no ammo. So the stronger gun could be pulled out in a crisis. Um, I don't know if other folks play that way, but that uh, may account for the fact that, like, the submachine gun feels like it takes up two slots, whereas the Magnum doesn't, because I don't tend to carry Magnum ammo. I mean, that's how I usually play, um, like, most of the Resident Evil games, where oh, okay. I have I have the weaker gun, and I'll have, like, one stronger gun, and I kind of just keep those two. Sometimes I got to the point where I just kind of forgot that I had other weapons, yeah. Because I'm also a very simplistic guy when it comes to survivor games like this. I have my weapons that are my tried and true. Mm-hmm. Not this game necessarily, but most games like this. Uh, I'm a pistol shotgun man. Mm-hmm. I usually have my pistol, which I keep a lot of ammo for. Um, and I keep for enemies that I viably think I can kill uh, with them. And then if I absolutely have to, I'll take out the shotgun. And the reason being is because games like this, you know, it's claustrophobic for a reason. Right. It's kind of interesting that we're talking about the other guns now, because I'm curious about the opinions on them. (laughs) Because I'll be honest, I didn't really use, I didn't use a bow gun. Um, I used the handgun through both scenarios. Yeah. Um, it's the ideal zombie killing gun. It's the like idea, generally, you're yeah. not in a scenario where zombies... The only scenario where you need something bigger than a handgun to take down the zombies is when you get in a hallway with, like, five of them. Right. And then it's just inefficient or dangerous to pick them off one by one, so you bust out your grenade launcher or shotgun. And usually by then, I kind of just either run past them, too. Like, I'll kill, like, two of them, and mm-hmm. I'll leave three shambling after me, and I'll just kind of run. That's funny. When I when I take down one, I'm like, well, shoot, I better clear out the whole room. <laughs> so it's it's a real problem. You know, when, once you get me going, I can't stop. Once you pop, you just can't stop. In the exactly. First game, in the first game, I was that way. But with this one, now that I think I'm getting kind of a an idea as to how to play these, I've gotten yeah, more accustomed attuned. to just kind of, nope, I don't have to fight this, so I'm just going to run. Uh, another two slaughter is the spark shot. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like a big cattle prod gun that shoots a <laughs> lightning bolt out. Uh, I picked this up pretty late in the game in the Claire B scenario. Uh, I used it to do one of the Birkin fights Same. and some plant monsters, and then it was out of juice. So I never used it again. So I can't speak to what it's specifically effective against. Uh, the tooltip indicates that it's very effective against, quote, experimental creatures. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> that reminds me I, of um, of Barry's uh, recommendation from the first game, where uh, the yeah. acid rounds are especially good against living things. <laughs> yeah, everything you're fighting in this game is, is an, an umbrella so experiment. So right. yeah, yeah, I don't. I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. I'm kind of curious what the um, what the original thing said. That feels like something that's just lost in translation. Yeah, that's a good point. That feels like a localization problem. There's a Gatling gun and a Colt revolver. These are unlockable bonuses. I did not get either of these. Did you get these, Chris, with your fancy A runs? <laughs> no, I I ran all four campaigns. I ran the X battle. I ran the fourth survivor mode, and I never unlocked 
either the Gatling gun or the Colt SAA revolver. One of my runs, I did unlock an infinite submachine gun. I will say, and I'm really casting my memory back here, when I originally played this game, I played the PC port of it, which unlocks all of the bonus guns from the start. And so I did use the Gatling gun way back when, when I first played Resident Evil 2. It's um, it's a lot like the submachine gun, but much more powerful. It uh, really tears through enemies, but the quirk of it is that it has kind of a wind-up. For the first uh, maybe second or so, it doesn't do any damage at all, so it can really get you in trouble with enemies that attack quickly like Lickers. We also have the addition of weapon upgrades. I don't recall finding any weapon upgrades in 1, so I think that's a new feature to 2. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't remember them in 1 either. Yeah, there are parts that you can combine with an existing weapon to make it stronger. Uh, the pistol can be turned semi... The pistol's already semi-automatic. Is that supposed to say fully automatic in the notes? <sighs> I am at my limit of uh, gun understanding here, I will admit. <laughs> um <laughs> Mm-mm-mm. So the pistol is is kind of semi-automatic in that you can, you know, pump off shots with it relatively quickly. What this does is it opens up burst shots, so you can fire three at a time. Okay. Uh, so it's not fully automatic in that you can't fire off an entire clip of it or that sort of thing, but it's not quite the single shot mode either. All right, so yeah, it adds a burst shot. There you go. Pistols. That's a better way to put it. Yep, that's burst fire to the pistols. And the shotguns and the magnums can be uh, upgraded to just increase their power. Mm-hmm. That would have been nice. I found the magnum damage increase. I never found the shotgun one. The shotgun one um, in at least Leon's A campaign is uh, just before you get to the factory. Uh, it's where you find the spark shot in Claire's campaign. I assume you ah. find a flamethrower in Leon's campaign somewhere, but I never did. Where I expected to find the flamethrower, I found the shotgun parts, so you got me. I learned that there's actually a flamethrower you can find um, through, like, YouTube videos. Because I remember yeah. there being one, but I didn't find one. You find it in the lab. It's, like, in a locker, I think. Oh, it, it, okay. God, my memory is so bad these days. I just finished Leon A, like, two or three days ago. I should <laughs> remember this. I'm pretty sure it's in the room where you can turn on the bioweapon sprinklers. Oh, you... gotcha. Yeah, it's like right, pretty much right when you let the plant creatures out. I know exactly where you're talking about, because in Claire's campaign, you get two grenade rounds there. Yeah. We got a question from somebody on Twitter, Celeste, and uh, I thought we should address this here, since it's plainly the burning topic on everybody's minds when they play Resident Evil 2. Where do the raccoon police department officers use the bathroom? There's just, there's no restrooms in the entire RPD, right? The sink in the dark room. It's got to drain for Pete's sake. You know, you got to use it. Didn't you have an answer for this, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, in the green room uh, over there on Discord, I was speculating. Um, there are an awful lot of potted green herbs around the RPD. <laughs> um, you know, and, and there's no real reason for them to be there other than being a really nice uh, pit stop. For the RPD officers, if you ask me. They were just all blue orbs at the start, and then when you pee on them, they turn green. <laughs> because blue and yellow make screen. Yeah, I think you got that right.
We've mentioned liquors and ivy and everything a few times now. Let's let's move on to monsters here. Let's do it. Uh, just kind of going through the ones that return. The zombies that you kind of run into in the police station are more or less unchanged from RE1. Mm-hmm. Same with the dogs, a.k.a. the Cerberi, Cerberuses. <laughs> the crows return. The spiders are back. Creeping terrors of the deep. I hate them so much. They scare me just <laughs> endlessly. Gosh, the spiders in this scare me. You know, there's a mod for Skyrim because there's a lot of giant spiders you fight. Yeah. There's a mod for people who are scared of spiders to replace all the spider models with bears. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. So it's really funny to go into a room and just see a bunch of bears crawling across the ceiling. At you. <laughs> that's really cute. Actually, feel like that's even more scary. Oh, my God. So hunters and chimeras are notably absent here. Good riddance. They've, yeah, yeah. They've been replaced with something much better. Yeah. The liquor. Heck yeah. So liquors are this game's uh, kind of fast, aggressive, agile enemy that you run into. Mm-hmm. So liquors were actually like the final evolved form of zombies. Yeah, I was hoping you'd, you'd give us the lore dump on this, Hamilton. What What's like, I can never remember, what's the background on how they made liquors? So my understanding is that they didn't actually make liquors per se as much as they just kind of found out that they were a byproduct of the zombies. Because the zombies themselves are failures mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. They're not they're not successful bioweapons. They're just beings who got exposed to the T-virus and they just became undead. Yeah, like Umbrella's trying to make tyrants. One of the byproducts is zombies. Exactly. And like the tyrants... I mean, they also had failures with that, a.k.a. like the first game. One of the most successful ones was the Nemesis, which we'll cover in the next game. Uh, Liquors, on the other hand, is the successful weaponized version of a human who became a zombie, but Mm -hmm. is actually a successful bioweapon. Oh, cool. So the liquor transformation is caused by the zombies that have consumed enough food where it sparks a drastic increase in their metabolism and thus cause hmm. a mutation into the liquor form. So the most productive zombies become liquors. It's like uh, it's kind of like a job promotion for them. Pretty hmm. much, which actually is kind of scary in its own right, because basically every single <laughs> zombie in entire uh, Raccoon City has the potential to become a liquor if they consumed enough biomass. Yikes. Um, but they're far more powerful, uh, agile, and less easy to kill than a zombie. Yeah, and I think Resident Evil 2, not only in terms of, as we've seen them in the games, but also in terms of the lore, marks their debut. Yes. Like, I wouldn't swear to it, but I think the Raccoon City incident is where Umbrella first discovers that liquors can be a thing. Mm-hmm. How do we first encounter them in the game, Spencer? Because it's pretty interesting. This is a really cool scene. Uh you enter a hallway, and normally you're used to hearing the sound of zombies shuffling. Mm-hmm. What you hear in this hallway instead is a dripping sound. You s- come across a pool of blood, and you see blood dripping from the ceiling, and it goes into a cutscene where you look up, and you see this thing crawling on the ceiling. It's like a zombie on all fours with extremely long claws. Its brain is exposed, no eyes, razor-sharp teeth, and a very long tongue. When you first hear it, it like exhales.
you may first encounter it as well in the room immediately preceding its full debut, uh, where when you turn down a uh, kind of a half hallway, a, a sort of annex to another room, there will be a liquor that silently runs across a window in the background. Yep. It's very easily missed. I noticed it and I made a note of it and then forgot I made a note of it until you brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) How does the liquor play out mechanically, Spencer? For one thing, they're introduced into the game much earlier than hunters are introduced in one. Mm -hmm. There's also much fewer of them. Or at least it feels that way. I didn't go through and count, but either just because they're more spread out or because there is actually fewer of them... It doesn't feel like you are running through a gauntlet of these unfair enemies at any point like it does with the hunters. Yeah, I did in one of the campaigns, and I can't remember which one it was. I want to say it was one of the B campaigns I ran into, like, an inordinate number of these, and I think it has to do just with with which routes you choose. On top of that, they have a mechanic built in that allows you to kind of avoid them if you don't want to fight them. As we mentioned, they don't have eyes, so these are actually blind. They identify the player's location uh, based off footsteps or gunshots. Mm -hmm. So you can walk slowly into a room, and if you don't touch it, and you don't make noise, they will just ignore you. One of the best details of their debut hallway is that there is shattered glass on the floor. Uh, So you can't actually make it to the far door without triggering the liquor's awareness of you which is a pretty cool uh cool little technique it's funny though we were discussing whether or not you could shoot the bow gun without alerting a liquor Mm -hmm. my experience was inconsistent because i I felt like sometimes it didn't and sometimes it did Hmm. so i went to the wiki and that didn't help it just said the bow guns man i should have just left it up so that i could quote it but it says (laughs) It can potentially confuse a liquor. And I'm like, well, that doesn't clarify anything. (laughs) Wow, that's the most kind of 1990s internet game advice you could get. Mm. Yeah. Like, this may do X. (laughs) Yikes. Or it might not. So quiet guns may be more effective (laughs) against liquors. Who knows? The wiki doesn't. I don't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, most of the time I used uh, acid grenades or flame grenades on liquors just to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Uh, There's an enemy called Ivy. These are kind of just mutant plant creatures. They don't show up until the very end. They can poison you, uh, but I guess I'll bring this up here. This adds these like planters filled with blue herbs Mm -hmm. at a couple different points that just have infinite poison cure, uh, which is kind of nice because we'd addressed in RE1 that you know, poison will kill you if you don't have a cure for it, and cure is a finite resource. So that fixes this here by adding a point that you can run back to to cure poison off yourself if you ever are out of blue herbs. Yeah, it's nice, though. If I'm being fussy, it feels like it kind of obviates the poison mechanic entirely. It feels like poison continues to be this sort of underbaked, like they weren't sure if they wanted to implement it or not sort of thing to me. Speaking of underbaked, there's a (laughs) giant moth that appears in one room that's completely optional. (laughs) This is the weirdest enemy. Yeah, you walk into a room and there's just a moth on the wall. (laughs) And you shoot it and kill it. It shoots poison out, so you just don't want to get close to it. Uh, And that's it. It's near a computer that you need to scan your fingerprint into if you want to unlock the bonus room. I know there are people who are scared of moths, and so maybe that's what this enemy is for. I've always been pretty fond of moths. You know, luckily they've never eaten through my 
you know, clothes in the closet or whatever. Maybe I'd be more spooked about them then. <laughs> but, um, you know, I always find them kind of beautiful creatures. And so um, I was kind of tickled that this enemy was in the game because, like, it never hurt me. Like, I blew it up with grenades or whatever because I'm a monster. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I encountered this moth and it just kind of sits there on the wall and flies down to the ground. Like, it's just it's, it's so, like, incidental. Aesthetically, the area it's in is really neat because the room it's in is down this little hallway. And when you first turn down that hallway, then the room itself is completely infested with larva. Yes. It's like these eggs that moth larva will pop out from. And it looks really neat. It but does. again, it's kind of off to the side and is completely optional and seems like it could it should have either oh, seems like it should have been bigger. I got kind of a funny scene in my Claire B because when I got to that room, I kind of didn't have any other weapon with me apart from my grenade launcher. And I didn't feel <laughs> like running back to the uh, box and back. So I just used grenades to blow larva off of a computer. <laughs> <laughs> and stupidly, it took like three I don't know if my aim was just terrible or no, if it's designed their to take a specific amount. they're extremely fussy. Their hitboxes are so fussy. Yeah, so I'm just picturing my character just shooting three grenades at this computer screen <laughs> to get some bugs off of it, and then the computer's still working. Thank goodness they made the computer out of that black box material. That's kind of it for the rank-and-file enemies. Uh, let's talk about bosses. Let's. Like RE1, unfortunately, mechanically all these bosses kind of suck, with one exception. <laughs> Uh, you kind of just run away from them, turn around and shoot them, rinse, repeat, until boss dead. But uh, some of them are interesting from a story perspective, which I'm sure Hamilton will cover when we get to the story. But just going through them quickly, uh, we've got G-Virus spawn. Mm -hmm. G-Virus is the evolved form of the virus that we encounter in this game that seems to morph people into these kind of... Uh, uh, this is kind of maybe a niche reference. I think of them as horrid form that the Zamish take from the Vampires the Masquerade stuff. That They're is like indeed big... a niche in, uh, niche reference. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really spot on though, darn it. Bummer. <laughs> um, but they Everybody, kind of, play these... Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> yes. So the first G-Virus spawn you fight, uh, it kind of pops out of a different character depending, that gets infected depending on which scenario you're running through. Mm -hmm. This one will spawn smaller critters that rush you. So that's kind of the, the wrinkle that this one has. Uh, you have here in the notes, I didn't encounter this, but you can apparently leave this boss encounter and come back later. I was so later. tickled to discover this. Yeah, I and I discovered it by accident. It's actually a little bit frustrating because I was fighting this boss and I happened to uh, back up towards the corner and I guess tap the action button or what have you. And so my character went through the door into the adjacent room. And I thought, well, that's kind of out of the ordinary for a Resident Evil boss encounter. I can just leave. This uh, boss only appears in the A scenario, if memory serves. Yes, I think that is correct. Yeah, it, it's replaced by uh, Birkin in the B scenario. Which is a perfect segue point for William Birkin. Mm -hmm. He is the scientist who created the G-Virus and is infected with it. Yeah. He shows up multiple times and uh, throughout progressive stages of mutation the design of this is really cool because the first time you fight him he's still mostly humanoid mm -hmm. and each uh you know subsequent time he shows up you see his you know how his human form has kind of 
shrunk and been consumed by the growing kind of viral form. Yeah, and by like three quarters of the way through the game, he's just kind of like a head um, coming out of the corner of an otherwise monstrous creature. And then eventually he's just a blob that eats a train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it's the ultimate evolution for us all, Lord willing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a blob that eats things. Feel attacked. <laughs> yeah, the twist on the formula is the crocodile. Uh, this is a, it's, I'd call it a puzzle boss in the mm-hmm. sewers. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if you can kill it in a traditional manner by just shooting it with enough grenades. I didn't try. Uh, but the way you can beat this boss, at least, uh, you allow it to chase you through the sewers down the way you came until you get to a uh, a knocked over gas tank. And at a certain point, the crocodile will pick the gas tank up in its mouth, and then you shoot that, and it blows the thing to bits. That's pretty much what I did. I didn't try and shoot it to death or anything. I was just like, I'm going to go with the tried and true. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I had a hard time trying to think of what it would be like the first time playing through this, because I remembered that's how you dealt with that boss, so that's what I did. If you can't actually kill it, you know, through raw firepower, I imagine this could potentially be frustrating for a new player if you just wasted a lot of ammo on this, only for it to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, and finally, we come to the Tyrant T00, aka Mr. X. Yeah. It is a trench coat wearing, big bald gray guy, and is the sort of successfully mass manufactured version of the Tyrant prototype uh, that we kill as the final boss in RE1. Uh, in the B campaign, one of these gets dispatched to the RPD to retrieve uh, a sample of the G-Virus that Sherry Birkin is unknowingly carrying around with her. In the remake, he kind of follows you around randomly as a pursuit mechanic. That's not the case here. This is pretty scripted. There are specific points where he shows up, and you have to avoid him, and he, he does not really chase you you know, past those points once you get out of the room he shows up in? Absolutely. Yeah, he he provides the illusion of pursuit rather than the reality of pursuit. He's initially dropped into the RPD from an umbrella helicopter, which is pretty sinister and cool. But um, he will never follow you between rooms. The one exception right. to that is a scripted encounter where he bursts out of a wall from a room where you just fought him. But that is not procedurally generated. Like, that's very specifically when you approach that wall, he bursts out of it. He, for example, can't go back through that wall if you return to the room that you were in. I'm curious what your encounters with him were like, because every single time I ran into this character, uh, it kind of played out the same way. Mm -hmm. He would hit me with a really fast punch that I could never dodge. And then immediately after I ate the fast punch, he would wind up for a big slow hit <laughs> that I could and I could just run right past him then. So it was always just, you know, eating exactly one hit and then scooting by. Yeah, that was pretty much my experience as well. He um, there were very few times that you encounter him that you can't really evade him. Well, I can think of two. They're both really narrow hallways, one down in uh, kind of the factory or laboratory. I guess it's the factory as well as one on uh, the highest floor of the police station, kind of a balcony. And you can get yourself trapped there, and so it's very hard to make it past him. So I did drop a bunch of ammo into him, and he'll um, 
he'll fall down entirely onto the ground. Uh, so I did beat him on those occasions. There were times where I was able to kind of avoid his first punch. Though, again, I mm-hmm. got extremely lucky. Um, because I told Spencer kind of before this whole thing started that similar to the last fight, um, I was actually able to avoid getting hit. But that's because hmm. it's tighter controls. I mean, this kind of goes back to what I was thinking of before. I was really trying to figure out like where the frustration kind of came from. Um, however, for the most part, I was not able to avoid his quick punch. Yeah. Um, I kind of had to wait there besides that one time where I did it kind of the same luck I had in the final fight. The final encounter with, uh, Mr. X here, he transforms into, uh, kind of this big clawed variant. It's yeah. much more, it's much similar to the RE1 tyrant. And this was... Probably the most frustrating point in the game for mm-hmm. me. Uh, I got I got pretty unhappy with this. Uh, <laughs> the way it works, in the first phase of the fight, from what we were able to determine based on our own gameplay and you know footage of other people playing the game, this is gated either by time or by damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do enough damage to him or if you just uh, stay alive long enough, eventually Ada will show up and throw a rocket launcher down that you have to go pick up and shoot him with. The thing is, in this state, the boss attacks very quickly, has very long range, and is very aggressive. So the act of getting to the rocket launcher in the middle and picking it up is actually really, really hard. It is. It's a very precise point on the ground that you need to pick it up from. Yeah, and because of tank controls, even though I kind of have gone to bat for them as being not as bad as people say, it's kind of unreasonably difficult to position yourself exactly where you need to be to grab that rocket launcher in the window you have in between tyrants attacks mm-hmm. or at the very least i had a very hard time with it um uh, strangely i stumbled into making this fight pretty easy for myself which is uh, generally spencer and i have the opposite experience uh, generally i kind of blunder through a fight but um in this case i happen to have acid grenades which the tyrant is weak to so uh, maybe it was a combination of timing and him happening to go down quicker to acid grenades. But I took the punk down in two shots and then the rocket launcher landed directly in front of Claire. So I instantly picked it up and fired it at him. And uh, wow. Claire utters a pretty wonderful one-liner at the time. You lose, big guy. So you did get pretty lucky. Yeah. I um I did have to move past him after I did enough damage. Like, I had to run past him. But I was mm-hmm. able to get by. I'm still trying to figure out how I did it. Because he has these large swings, and he hits really, really hard. Yeah. Now, another thing I wanted to bring up. I don't have any sources to, like, verify this. But this is a pretty explicit reference to Terminator, right? It feels like it has to be, because the tyrant gets transformed into his final variant by falling into uh, a vat of molten lead, which I think is is hilariously labeled employees only, if you inspect it. <laughs> also, he's T-00 instead of the T-800. Yeah. He's pursuing Sherry Birkin instead of John Connor. I'm sure there's a lot of references. Interesting. 
Yeah, and we know that Kami is a big fan of 1980s action movies. Exactly. Good good catch, Spencer. Yeah. One of the fun things about this boss as well is that Western fans in particular often refer to it as Mr. X, as you'll have uh, heard us doing kind of intermittently. This name originally comes from a series of comics that were created by the uh, company Wildstorm in uh, North America. Capcom gave the license out for uh, several stories based initially on Resident Evil 1, and then the uh, comic writers sort of expanded it into the wider Raccoon City incident. So they got limited direction and had to come up with some names of their own. It also originates almost simultaneously with a series of novels by the writer S.D. Perry, set in the Resident Evil universe. She novelized the first few Resident Evil games, as well as uh, creating some unique stories set in that world. And so in her novelization of Resident Evil 2, Claire refers to this creature as Mr. X. It's interesting to hear how kind of Mr. X came about. Yeah, and and I wonder how many other folks like myself read the novels before they played Resident Evil 2. Like, that's got to be a fairly slim number of people. But I distinctly remember reading uh, S.D. Perry's really, frankly, quite breezy, fun novel of this game before playing the game itself, since I didn't have a PlayStation at the time, but was still really excited for it. Uh, You know, you don't need a specific home game console to read a book, right? Exactly. So, Hamilton, tell us about the story for this game. How's it get started? All right. So, the setup of this game has Claire and Leon, as uh, we discussed before. So, Leon is uh, a rookie cop, and this is actually his first day on the job. Imagine that. As he tells Claire when they meet, first day on the job. Exactly. That's the first thing that he says. Um, You know, when there's a zombie apocalypse, either two things are going to happen. One, you're either two weeks away from retirement, or two, it's your first day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no in-between. <laughs> There's no in-between with things like this. Yeah. Um, and Claire is uh, Chris Redfield's sister from the first mm-hmm. game. She's looking for her brother in the city. She yeah. heard about the uh, the issue with um, Spencer Estate. Uh, since she was modified from Elza, her background and Elza's background are similar. That's a good point. They're both motorcyclists. They're both motorcyclists, um, college students... Yeah, um, they have very similar backgrounds. The only difference, again, is to uh, sync this game up with the last game, so you have mm-hmm. Redfield having a sister. Yeah, I can dig it. They both arrive in Raccoon City, and you find out it's been overrun by zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, yeah, of, they meet up at a diner. Yeah, they meet up in a diner. Um, in the beginning of Leon's uh, campaign, as we discussed before, you find out that. Uh, a truck driver had been bitten, mm-hmm. who later drives his truck into 
Now, in this game, he doesn't drive it into the diner, right? It just kind of crashes? No, he doesn't. So they uh, they leave the diner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get into a nearby cop car that Leon drives. Uh, Leon provides his humorous introduction. Mm-hmm. Claire pulls a gun out of the glove box, which will become relevant later for her survival. And uh, they're then ambushed by a zombie in the back seat, at which point they crash the car. And then uh, the zombified truck driver comes barreling down the highway towards them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two of them dive out of the car on opposite sides at just the right moment to avoid the ensuing conflagration. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's also what separates them. So their stories proceed kind of simultaneously. Yeah. So as we discussed before with the the zapping mechanic, with the A and Mm -hmm. the B. They're kind of supposed to be both happening at the same time. Yeah, it's like if you uh, if you do whoever your A campaign is goes in through the front of the police station, and whoever your B campaign is goes in through the back of the police station, mm-hmm. uh, and that swaps around based on which character you pick for your A campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the star survivors have disappeared, mm-hmm. from which a memo actually reveals that they went uh, to Europe to attack the Umbrella. Um, headquarters yeah which is a fed that'll uh, appear in future games yeah it sure will that'll be relevant later in uh code veronica i believe yes so that's kind of the basic setup of the game and then from there you're just kind of surviving you're going through but you meet certain interesting people some of which are just in this game some of which will appear in other games so what we'll do uh we're just going to talk about at least five noteworthy story developments in this one. Yeah, sounds good. Um, we're going to start off with the Birkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Birkin, he's the one that actually had been developing the G virus from the T virus, mm-hmm. uh, which is the upgraded zombie virus. Um, the T virus was uh, was kind of like the first dra- uh, draft of the progenitor virus. Right. Um, I'm not yeah, gonna... We'll learn a lot more about yeah. the progenitor virus later on. Yeah, I'm not going to go too in-depth on that, but I would at least keep the name of progenitor virus in your head. Yep. Because that is super important. We also have Annette Birkin, who is William Birkin's wife, and is his liaison who maintains his relationship with Chief Irons. Bum, bum, bum. And then we have a very important character, Sherry Birkin, mm-hmm. who is both of their daughter. And yeah, be, the least awful of the Birkins by a wide margin. By a very wide margin. And is also uh, <laughs> going to be Claire's partner. Yes. However, one thing that is interesting about Sherry is the fact that she has she has the G-virus in her. Sherry does get infected by William in the uh, Claire A scenario. But it's, it's one of those problems where if... Um, you know, the, the two the two sets of scenarios are kind of mutually exclusive in certain ways. And so Leon A, Claire B, Sherry does not get infected. In Claire A, Leon B, Sherry does get infected. So um, much like with a lot of games, if you're too tuned into kind of like, which is the canon scenario or that sort of thing, you'll end up disappointed. Like the final result of this game is kind of a a messy combination of the scenarios based on which will be most interesting to future stories. Mm -hmm. So going back to William Birkin, he was betrayed by his company after betraying his company, after betraying his company. He's, he's a pretty vile person. You find out the Birkins are not great besides Sherry. Right. 
Umbrella tries to go and retrieve the sample of the G virus from him by force. Yeah, because he's become very protective about it. Exactly. He pretty much says in the beginning uh, cutscene that no one can take his G virus away from him. Right, you know, right. Very melodramatically. And they end up shooting him and taking the sample, or a sample, but he ends up having a sample in his pocket, which he uses to infect himself. Yeah, like like any good scientist. Exactly. That single-handedly makes William the, uh, pretty much the main antagonist, kind of. And I say kind of because he doesn't really know what he's doing, really. Right. He's, yeah. the whole point of the G-Virus, well, not the whole point, but one big point of the G-Virus is to multiply. Mm-hmm. And you do that by infecting other people. So once he becomes a G-Mutant, his entire goal, his existence, is to reproduce. Which is one yeah. reason why he's seeking Sherry uh, throughout um, the course of the game. Yeah, it's kind of a grim element that I don't think is ever really fully explored in detail. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is why he's seeking her specifically. He does implant uh, G-Virus spawn in several other characters, depending upon the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, he implants a spawn in Ben Bertolucci, a journalist in the RPD prison as well as in Chief Irons in one of the campaigns. Mm -hmm. But his main goal seems to be Sherry Birkin, his daughter. I didn't find anything that goes to this, but I think it's just because he has an emotional bond with Sherry, and I think that's one reason why his mutant goes after her. Hmm. Okay, yeah. It feels like it's kind of pulling from that George Romero Dawn of the Dead, like, they remember the connections they had in life. Yeah. They just don't really explicate it well. But going uh, forward, so... William eventually does kill his wife, Annette, mm-hmm. uh, who's going around uh, threatening Ada, of all people. Yeah, they're very two-dimensional characters, admittedly. Like, yeah. it's a pretty limited script, and these characters get very limited screen time. Yeah. Well, it's important to note on the Birkin line, too, that that is how the outbreak happens, is yes. when William gets shot up by the uh, the Umbrella agent's the samples that he's carrying with him break open in the sewer and then rats get into it and transport it throughout the That's city. That's true. Yeah, you're right. I'm so glad yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah. That'll be a good lead into our next villain is Chief Irons. He's going to be our noteworthy story uh, aspect number two. He only appears in Claire's story. Uh, he's just a very corrupt, just evil man who's uh, in cahoots with Birkin. Mm-hmm. He killed the mayor's daughter. You see him with her body the moment you find him. That's a very weird scene. Like, there's some, like, for a late 1990s PlayStation game, there's some really, like, creepy reading between the lines stuff here. Yeah. Um, With regard to, like, him, the, the mayor having, like, placed the protection of his daughter in Chief Iron's hands... And, like, Chief Iron's talking about the quality of her skin and stuff, and... Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of touchy things that he does, which I think that they're trying to bring home just how terrible he is. It's kind of deft the way that they uh, reveal how this happens. Mm-hmm. Because when you do the Leon A, Claire B route, in Leon A, you get, you find memos... Uh, outlining how Chief Irons is in cahoots with Umbrella and how he was kind of helping them kind of cover up their underground laboratory. And it really just kind of paints him as like this corrupt or greedy police chief. And then when you meet him in Claire's story, 
that's the context you have for him. And then it just kind of explodes into this whole other can of worms of him hunting people. Yeah. Um, like out of nowhere. That's kind of surprising. And I, I just think it's really neat the way that they structured that. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, they set up an expectation and then just like shoot a mile past it. <laughs> I mean, they also kind yeah. of allude to him losing his mind. Some of the um, the memos that are around actually paints a descent into madness so I believe That's that he true. was corrupt, but with like everything falling apart around him, uh, almost gave him the the leeway or the lack of responsibility where he can just kind of feels like he can just do whatever he wants now. The world's coming to an end, so why not? I'm just going to go with my basis instincts. Yeah, for like for a guy that gets maybe like I don't know like 15 minutes of screen time, he's a pr- surprisingly well sketched individual. Yeah, and again, you know, kudos to the writer. You know, this this comes from Power Rangers, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah, Sugimura really, <laughs> really demonstrates his writing chops with Chief Irons. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is clearly above and beyond the kind of writing that was present in Resident Evil One, mm-hmm. and it's impossible not to attribute this to Sugimura for sure. Yeah, because you get the feeling, and through dialogue as well. I mean. I don't know if we covered this or if we'll cover this, but the the voice acting has increased by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. I think we touched yeah. on that momentarily, but it really has. Um, I mean, there's also voice actors that they have in this game that appear in works today. So right, those right. who are far more experienced. Yeah, the quality is much higher. And Chief Irons comes across as quite unhinged in his voice Exactly. Performance. Like the voice performance is very well showing that just like, this man is insane. I need to get away from him ASAP. <laughs> yeah. He's also sabotaged the uh, RPD when the outbreak began so that no one would know what he did. Right. And he's also pretty thorough with that, too, because he also hunted down the officers of the mm-hmm. RPD and prevented them from having access to resources to fight the zombie onslaught. Yeah. He does get his um his comeuppance in the end, more or yep. less. I don't know if it really accounts for all the horrible things that he's done, but he does die. He'll either get killed by the G parasite infecting him in the A game, mm-hmm. or simply being torn in half by the G creature in the uh, in the B game. Yeah. So let's continue on to our third noteworthy uh, development in this game, Ada Wong. Yeah. Um, she's a character who will appear in multiple games. That's really not spoiling anything. That's just kind of how it is. She's going to become a very popular character. Um, she's a Chinese-American... Uh, we're going to call her civilian for now. She's actually a spy, but honestly, we don't know who she works for. It never states who she works for, ever. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that her employer has remained anonymous to this point. Like, Ada is just defined by her spyhood, but for whom? I don't know. I mean, I think even like six games later, they say someone she was working for, but you still don't know. Yeah. However, for the purpose of this game, she only appears in Leon's story. Um, and she's first mentioned in a memo in uh, Resident Evil 1 by a researcher named John. Which is interesting, because mm-hmm. in this game, she actually claims to be seeking her boyfriend, John. That's her story that she tells Leon. Yeah, this is a really nice little detail by the uh, the script mm-hmm. writers. Who knows if uh, Leon actually buys it or not. I mean, she has a habit of just kind of disappearing randomly. And Leon's a real doofus. He is. 
Because he'll get caught in traps or get chased by giant crocodiles or do whatever. And Ada's just kind of like, oh, I have to go over here and do things. <laughs> and Leon's just yeah, like, Yeah, her no. justification for it is is humorously flimsy. Yeah. Like, she doesn't even try. Know that she really need to, really. Because... Yeah, like, Ada has yeah. assessed Leon and found his brain wanting. Pretty much. So she's just like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be over here. Um, however, throughout the course of Leon's story, she apparently seemingly falls in love with Leon because, of course, mm-hmm. right? You you find out later that's very untrue, but Ada's very good at what she does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I were you about to say that that's kind of true, actually? No, I was just gonna say I love how that kind of plays into the low expectations the first game sets up for the mm-hmm. writing because presumably Ada loves her boyfriend. That's why she came all the way here to find him. So it's really funny. Or, yeah, it's kind of funny that mere minutes after finding out he's dead, she's hitting on Leon. (laughs) If you don't know any better, you might pick up on that as just being really awful Resident Evil writing. So it's fun that it kind of turns it around and has a narrative justification for it. Yeah. She's as much as uh, Wesker is in terms of who's working for who. Like, she's like a quintuple agent. Yeah, although at least Ada isn't evil. Like, Wesker is is explicitly, like... Very much, yeah. He's a bad dude. You know, like, he's seeking self-aggrandizement. Yeah. And Ada's... I mean, I guess we don't totally know what Ada is up to, but she so frequently does the right thing. She's not hard That it's hard evil. not to assume some level of good faith from Ada. And in this game specifically, she's trying to extract the G-Virus for her question mark client. Although she's seemingly murdered by William Birkin's wife, Annette. Yes. Uh, or, of course, the uh, the tyrant, Mr. X, yes. in uh, the alternate version mm-hmm. of events. Um, but kind of as you'd expect, she does survive by the end. And she'll throw whichever character you're playing as. The final character, a rocket launcher. Um, during their final battle with the uh, T-00 or Mr. X before she seemingly disappears for good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think it's cute that the game tries to render this as like a, who's that character? But like, it's got a pretty limited selection of models, and that character is clearly Ada, even though she's in silhouette. Right. But let's move on from, from Ada and go to our fourth uh, noteworthy aspect of Resident Evil 2 uh, with the Umbrella Discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, so RE2 deepens quite a bit of the lore of uh, what Umbrella is as a company, corporation, slash uh, the dealings that they've been doing. Yeah, going in a radically different direction from the original plot of the game, which had Umbrella disbanded before Resident Evil 2. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it suffers. Not suffers. It goes through kind of what most sequels do. A lot of first drafts of games or first games, you know, you don't know if you're going to get a sequel or not. So you really want to tidy up the story as much as you can so it can be a standalone if it's going to be a standalone. That's what you should do with a first title. You should. Now, there has Like leaving a cliffhanger, yeah. There has been games where they just like, oh, we explicitly know there's going to be a sequel, right? It's got to sell enough. And then, nope, no sequel. (laughs) Yeah, so you just get an incomplete story. Exactly. But this one, they were able to kind of go a little bit more in-depth as to what Umbrella mm-hmm. is. Um, so instead of this kind of question mark evil corporation, they're actually bioweapon developers. But in this case, they're 
masquerading as a benevolent pharmaceutical company. Exactly. Yeah, we'll see this a lot more in Resident Evil 3, but you can see it starting here that, like, Umbrella is a major employer in Raccoon City and is, like, very closely tied to the police department in Raccoon City. And so there is this assumption that Umbrella is uh, a benevolent uh, helper of Raccoon City when, in fact, it's using Raccoon City as a kind of testing ground for its own sinister purposes. Uh, You also find that Umbrella has its own military. Yeah, like, broadly speaking, pharmaceutical corporations do not have their own military forces. (laughs) So, like, that's a real red flag. For those who are unaware, generally, if you're creating, <laughs> a, you know, things to help people and medications and whatnot, they usually don't have a dedicated fighting force. But yeah, it's just kind of interesting to, like, find out a bit more about what Umbrella is up to. But besides that, that'll lead us into our fifth and final kind of noteworthy part of uh, Resident Evil 2, which is a very dramatic scene. The escape from mm-hmm. the train, or escape via train. As we discussed, we discussed uh, William Birkin in the sense that he's kind of the main antagonist, but as you do more damage to him, he mutates. Um, yeah. And you find out that it's actually a characteristic of the G-Virus. The G-Virus has a few defining characteristics. Wanting to um, reproduce. Eyeballs slash uh, body parts. Uh, teeth. Various parts of the the anatomy that'll show up in the body, especially the yes, eyeball, popping up. They'll show yeah. giant eyeballs of the G virus. The second one is the need to reproduce, as we discussed before. Mm-hmm. Um, replication is very important for the G virus, and the third one is evolution due to stress. Hmm. Um, it was specifically made so the more damage the body goes through, the more it will adapt via mutation. However, yeah, that makes sense for a bioweapon, sure. Exactly. However, the G virus was never finalized in the sense that the mutations always cause significant mental degradation. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why, again, they were trying to work on the G virus and they keep trying to make viruses better and better so you can retain yeah. some kind of mental faculty. The G virus's biggest issue is the fact that you lose your mind. And by the yeah, this sort of this murderous G mutant is not the ideal form of a G virus creation, right? And because throughout the game, you're well, you have to attack William Birkin. He keeps mutating into more grotesque, more grotesque, till so eventually becomes this giant blob. Mm-hmm. And you are tasked with escaping Raccoon City, and you have to do so by an underground chain from this gigantic toothed blob. Yeah, and he'll eat you if you aren't careful. He will. He certainly will. Yeah, it sort of creeps towards you across a train car bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have enough ammo to finish it off, it will uh, it will eat you before it gets to the end of the train car. That's kind of the, the, the setting that we're setting up. Mm-hmm. Kind of the whole, like, what am I actually escaping from? Oh god, this thing's going to eat me type thing. Right. Right. So the train will eventually self-destruct after the three escape. The three being Leon, Claire, and Sherry. And then you get a really rockin' final song if you're playing the B scenario and escape from the train. <laughs> it's real funky. <laughs>
So, Chris, want to go into uh, ports, remakes, and re-releases? Absolutely. Yeah, this is my kind of bread and butter here because I am a sucker for minor variations on games or books or movies. The PlayStation version that came out in early 1998 was followed up with uh, DualShock Edition in late 1998. Like the first game, this added joystick support, added a rookie mode where you get the uh, submachine gun, Gatling gun, and rocket launcher at the start. This introduces the extreme battle mode for the first time, which is built on top of the Sega Saturn version of Resident Evil 1's battle mode. The player chooses a character, and your options are Leon, Claire, Chris, or Ada. Chris and Ada are unlockable. And then you seek to gather bombs that are randomly assigned to various Resident Evil 2 areas before planting them on the train. Depending upon like which character you choose, you get a different weapon loadout and different uh, weapon and, and ammo availability throughout the experience. It's pretty tough, um, but it is a nice way to extend replay value. The PC edition that launched in early 1999, which is the first version that I played, is pretty similar to the PlayStation DualShock Edition, but it unlocks all of the bonus content from the start. So, you know, your alternate costumes, your different weapons, and so forth. This was superseded much later in 2006 by a revised PC edition, but that one was only available in Japan. Uh, fans, I believe, have created, like, translation patches and so forth, and that is arguably the best version of the game to play today, but it takes a lot of work to get it running. The Nintendo 64 version uh, was the next released back at the time. This came out in uh, 1999 in North America and then 2000 in Japan. This version is extremely famous for being one of the best home console ports of a game ever created. It was produced primarily by Angel Studios, which would later become Rockstar San Diego and go on to create the Red Dead Redemption series. This is uh, maybe the only game to reproduce pre-rendered full-motion video in a Nintendo 64 cartridge. And just to be clear about how ambitious this was, the original Resident Evil 2 was spread across two 700-megabyte CD-ROMs. The Angel Studios-produced version of Resident Evil 2 for the Nintendo 64 appeared on a single 64-megabyte cartridge. One of the interesting elements of this port of the game are the X-Files that you can find. Now, this is EX-Files, not, uh, you know, Chris Carter's popular 1990s television series. The uh, X-Files provide a bit of Resident Evil 1 backstory because it was conceived of that somebody who owned a Nintendo 64 and was playing it there might not have owned a PlayStation and might not be familiar with the Spencer Mansion events. It also ties it into Resident Evil 3, with a handful of files that suggest the events of that game, as well as hinting towards Resident Evil Zero, a much later game in the series, since that was originally in development simultaneous with this for the Nintendo 64. This is the first Resident Evil port that includes traditional 3D controls as well. So you folks who are not fans of tank controls out there, were you to play the Resident Evil 2 port for the Nintendo 64, would not be obliged to use them. I don't find it playable. Um, I certainly uh, took some time to play this version of the game, and I found it a bit maddening because the D-pad is so bad that it registers the wrong inputs when you're trying to walk forward. And if you use the joystick and traditional 3D controls, then anytime you switch screens, you lose your uh, what direction you were traveling in. It's a bit of a mess. 
Finally, the randomizer mode of the game is unique in series history for uh, being the only randomizer present in an official Resident Evil product. This, uh, like fan-made randomizers for other games, uh, moves item locations around randomly, appropriately enough, and so the game is kind of infinitely replayable when using this option. Uh, it, it makes it much harder because you don't know where any given thing is going to be. Uh, so you have to move around the police station quite a bit. Uh, you, you don't quite have your bearings, even if you played through the game before. Hilariously, a Game.com port came out in late 1999. Uh, I guess some folks call this the Gamecom, you know, whatever you call it. It was a uh, black and white monochrome handheld device developed by Tiger Electronics. And this port of Resident Evil 2 was likewise developed by Tiger Electronics. It's a 2.5D brawler style game. Uh, so you can kind of like move into the background or towards the foreground. But it doesn't have quite the cinematic camera angles of the original Resident Evil 2. It lacks color. Uh, and it lacks Claire's campaign. You can only play through this as Leon. There was a plan to produce a second version of the game featuring Claire, but this didn't sell well enough to merit it. Finally, there are a couple of pretty straightforward ports. The first of these was the Dreamcast, which came out in uh, 1999 in Japan and then 2000 in North America. This has slightly updated visuals, uh, just slightly higher resolution. The cutscenes in it run at 60 frames per second, but the gameplay still runs at 30. This version of the game is most noteworthy for the Dreamcast's VMU memory card, which sat in a dock in the controller that had a little display on it, and so you could look down and see your character's health on the controller. A GameCube version followed in 2003, and this is pretty much a straight port of the DualShock version from the PlayStation, again with slightly improved graphics. And then, of course, we have the full remake in 2019, which we're going to be covering in a future episode. This is an internally developed reimagining produced from the ground up by Capcom using their RE engine for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. It's uh, got a third-person over-the-shoulder style in the vein of RE4, so as you can imagine, it doesn't reuse anything whatsoever from the original Resident Evil 2, except for the overall plot arc. Hamilton, what did you think of this game? So, this is definitely, like, in my opinion, one of the best Resident Evil games just made. Yeah. It's one of those it's one of those situations where it's like, they got the sequel right. They took everything from the first game and just made it better. Um, again, I don't know if I just came into this game knowing that it was better. 
Uh, so the tank controls did not bother me in the slightest. In fact, I thought it was more tight. Um, it never really frustrated me. I mean, some of the cheapness of the bosses, or uh, those random times where I get caught in a room and there's two or three liquors. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I died some cheap deaths, but I mean, for the most part, it is what it is. It's definitely not even close to enough to like really make me dislike the game. Um, I really actually enjoyed the voice acting again. I enjoyed the uh, the cutscenes more than I remembered. Um, because I, I don't know what I was expecting. I just kind of expected it to just kind of be like really sloppy and and terrible. But it's like again, they took everything from the first game and just like, nope, here's something much better. Yeah, like it's not perfect, but it's dramatically better. And also, one of the biggest things I really like is the fact that I just did not really run out of ammo in this game. I feel that they're much more liberal with how much uh, ammo is around. Um, which which might be a problem for those who really like, you know, the lack of ammo and you have to really watch what you're doing. And again, like, there are still some circumstances where I had to run past enemies. I didn't want to waste bullets. Yeah, I still never felt like I could be reckless, right? Right, like, you don't want to be reckless, but in the same regard, it's just like, it also rewards you for that lack of recklessness it's like okay well you're going to find a lot of bullets here like well done so all in all uh, maybe i should say more but just i would rec- just play it i'm gonna tell people to play it play this game if if you like res um resident evil or horror games in general just pick this up and give it a shot or even just watch it it's it's a really solid game Spencer, what are your thoughts on this uh on this glorious masterpiece? I really love this. Um it goes down a lot smoother than Resident Evil 1 while still kind of maintaining uh like the friction required to, you know, make it feel like a survival horror game. It's really gorgeous looking. Uh the models look nice. The score is incredible. We didn't really bring up the sound, but the music in this is very good. Uh, one of my big kind of sticking points with the first one was I felt they were not generous enough with the save ribbons, and this is more generous with save ribbons. Uh, the bosses are still a low point, but that's just kind of a bugbear I have with this franchise in general. I don't think the bosses in any Resident Evil game ever really get good. Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine a series that needs you to feel underpowered also having compelling bosses, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's it's a really tough line to kind of straddle with making the game enjoyable, but also make it feel like you're fighting with it. That doesn't make much sense. It kind of no, makes no, sense. No, no, no. Th- I think you've hit the nail <laughs> on the head with that, actually. Yeah, and this is really... This just kind of feels like the apotheosis of early Resident Evil design and just hitting it out of the park on like every, you know, bit of the checklist. Yeah. I really recommend this one, even if you skip one, you know, the plot in one is pretty straightforward enough that you don't need it. Yeah, as a person yeah. with this, as a person who skipped straight to two uh, and then went back to one later, like I didn't feel like I missed much. I mean, it's not really a lot of It's story. zombies in a city. Exactly. Right. All right. What did you think of this game, Chris? I, too, absolutely adore this game. 
Uh, Resident Evil 2 was the game that made me a fan of the series. Strangely, I kind of stumbled my way into it. I think I read the uh, S.D. Perry novelization before playing the game itself, and then played Resident Evil 3 first, I think, and then ended up at Resident Evil 2 on the PC. Uh, it was a really strange journey that I took to Resident Evil 2, but I remember the uh, the promotional material getting me so psyched for it, because as spooky as horror in kind of an isolated mansion in the woods is, I find the idea of an entire city in which there is no safe location significantly scarier than the setting of Resident Evil 1. Like, um, and you kind of encounter this if you, uh, on the occasions that you're outside in Resident Evil 2, you just hear the ambient noise of the city. And like the the sort of zombie howls and screams and so forth on the wind are just perfect. Like they really kind of cast a really oppressive atmosphere over the entire proceedings. The game itself is not oppressive, though, which I enjoy. It's sort of breezy in a way. Like you said, Hamilton, you get a little bit more ammo than you did in Resident Evil 1, and the weapon variety is greater. So it's a little bit more of a fun puzzle working your way from start to finish than the survival grind of Resident Evil 1. There's just a little bit more creativity involved in exploring the uh, RPD and the sewers and the Umbrella Laboratories and so forth. I played through all four campaigns this time, as well as some of the bonus material, and would strongly advocate that folks do that. Because one of the coolest little tricks that Capcom plays with this is messing with your expectations on subsequent playthroughs. They change up enemy placement quite a bit, and so uh, even on the fourth run through the game, I would occasionally get to a room and think, aha, this is a safe place I can run through, and then be attacked by a liquor from the ceiling or something. So uh, Capcom and Hideki Kamiya are kind of firing on all cylinders here as far as subverting player expectations over a pretty long runtime. So you can have fun with this game if you just want to do it for the uh, action or the jump scares on one run, or you can commit to it for a pretty long series of repeat adventures and still be spooking yourself each time you play. I was hoping at some point we'd have an excuse to talk about the Sorry, but it looks like your party has been canceled. Oh my god! Scene. Yeah, Marvin yeah. Branagh's a trip. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> It's like, literally, he just kept himself alive just so he could say that line. He's been thinking of that while he's been laying there for hours. hours. That's the closest we get to some good old RE1 dialogue. It is, yeah. And you notice, Spencer, I think, kind of a quirky bit of dialogue with Marvin and Leon in the Resident Evil 1.5 build, too, right? So Leon's running through the police station, and you run into Marvin. And Marvin says, hey, let's see if anyone else is still alive. And Leon just goes, Why? (laughs) <laughs> it's like solid point And that's all for Resident Evil 2. 
We hope you've enjoyed the show and encourage you to come back next time for Resident Evil 3. In the interim, consider backing us at patreon.com slash franchise festival. You'll get access to a bonus episode each month and even have the chance to vote on future episode topics. If you have any suggestions, you can also drop us a line on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest or email us at franchisefestival at gmail.com. As ever, we've been your hosts, Chris, Spencer, and Hamilton. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.